Welcome to another episode of Dialogues with me, Richard Reeves. I think it's uh, no exaggeration to say that liberalism and liberal democracy are, are under pressure. And one of the most prominent liberal voices of, of our time is Frank Fukuyama, uh, who's well known for his famous and some would say infamous book from 92, The End of History and The Last Man. And in this conversation, we talk a little bit about his his journey, his intellectual journey and how his thinking has evolved since then, including the central tension between the universalism of liberal morality, uh, but the fact of nation states that put lines between people, uh, as well as between the pluralism that liberal politics typically demands, but also the central importance of doumos, the the Greek term. Turns out he's a classical Greek scholar, which I didn't know before this conversation, which is a term that gets at respect dignity and and recognition. These are all issues that he picks up in his latest book, Liberalism and Its Discontents. And in that book, he argues that the virtues of liberalism need to be clearly articulated and celebrated once again, and that they're no longer taken for granted. And so I think his his own journey has been fascinating over the last uh, 20 to 30 years. Uh, Along the way, we talk about the perils of the university tenure system. We actually start with that. The significance of the war in Ukraine and how that helps us to think about nationalism, good and bad. Why Papua New Guinea is a good place to study political order, which was subject of two big books that he produced in the last few years. The relationship between liberalism as a political philosophy and laissez-faire capitalism. And spoiler there is that that link is hugely overstated in his view and and mine. And the content of a good life, or what it means in John Stuart Mill's words, to pursue our own good in our own way, or at least a good life as seen through the eyes of a liberal. So uh, as you'll probably be able to tell, I really enjoyed catching up uh, with his thinking. I think he's a really important thinker of our time, and I hope you enjoy it too. So, Frank, welcome to Dialogues. Thanks very much for coming on. Thanks very much, Richard, for having me. You know, I've enjoyed enjoyed much of your work, actually. And although we're going to talk mostly today about your most recent book, Liberalism and Its Discontents, I think we'll be drawing on some of your other work, including your previous work on identity, some of your work around political order, and way back to, to the end of history. But can we start with a bit of your own journey? I think you became sort of well-known during that period of, of liberal, sort of liberal triumph. Do you remember the good old days of liberalism between right, 89 right. and 2009? But how did you get interested in these questions uh, in, in the first place uh, in your own intellectual journey? Well, um I had a number of very good teachers. Uh, That was one respect in which I was extremely fortunate. The first of the really formative ones was Alan Bloom, uh, who uh, was actually my first teacher at Cornell when I started as a freshman in the fall of 1970. Uh, He had just uh, quit Cornell because of the Cornell crisis, but he taught a seminar on Plato's Republic uh, and that's what started me out as a classics major. I went on to learn Attic Greek uh, so I could read Plato mm. in the original. And I think, you know, his major contribution was to, uh, you know, to um, really open my eyes to the importance of philosophy in, in this Socratic sense, you know, where you're asking big questions and um, trying to reason your way towards an understanding of, you know, what is the best way to live? What does the just city look like? Uh, you know, questions of this sort. Um, I took a lot of detours. You know, I spent some time with French structuralism and <laughs> deconstructionism and so forth. But wow. uh, I ended up, um, you know, retaining that kind of humanistic uh, core to my education, which has come in extremely uh, usefully uh, in later stages of my career even when I had moved on to more practical policy, you know, uh, kinds of issues. Mm, so even as he was talking about the closing of the American mind, he was opening opening up your mind by, by the sound yeah. of it. Uh, and to that sort of multidisciplinary nature, that explains, I think, a, a fair amount about your work, because it does range from classical history through philosophy, uh, social science, and, so, and obviously political science, too. And so it feels as if, and we'll get to some of the details in a moment, but just I'm interested in your method at the moment. When you're writing, it doesn't feel like you're attempting to write within a particular disciplinary lane. It's rather you're addressing a question and then draw, drawing the evidence from whichever disciplines seem to work 
for you, which is relatively un- unusual still, I would say, in the academy. Yes, do you, do you uh, find definitely. that? Definitely. Yeah. Well, I also have a theory about uh, about that and why I escaped it, which really has to do with academic tenure. You know, what an academic discipline does is it's it's a guardian of a methodology. And, uh, you know, if you're a young academic trying to get tenure, you have to prove to your academic colleagues, and it's not all of them, it's a very, very small subset of them, that you've mastered the uh, methodology. And in my experience, they care more about the methodology than the substance of whatever subject the methodology is investigating. Uh, And, you know, the result is that I think they're kind of mistrained by the time they actually do get tenure. They're now free to address broader, you know, questions, but they're very socialized into, you know, a particular way of looking at the world. And, you know, I've seen this uh, in in the past, um, you know, dealing, let's say, with a young, untenured economist. You ask them to work on an interdisciplinary project or a policy-oriented project, and because it's not going to produce an article in one of the top economics journals, they just don't want to do it, you know, because they're too scared that they're not going to get uh, tenure. And as a result, you know, they end up uh, just reinforcing these. Well, in fact, um, my colleague Mike McFall was saying that he actually liked working with undergraduates much better than graduate students because the undergraduates hadn't yet been socialized, you know, uh, into these narrow disciplinary cubby holes. Now, the reason I escaped all this was I didn't start out as an academic. I, I started mm-hmm. the first 10 years of my uh, career were spent either at the State Department or at the Rand Corporation, the think tank in California. Uh, and I entered academia laterally uh, when I started at George Mason, and I got my first academic job having tenure already. So I didn't have to prove to a bunch of disciplinary colleagues, you know, that I was a master of, you know, whatever political science consisted of at that time. And I feel, you know, I'm very grateful for that because it kind of freed me to really do whatever, you know, I wanted to do. Well, it's interesting because you did have to sort of come in through through the side window in a way to yeah. avoid that. It's, I mean, this is a, not exactly what I plan to open with, but it is interesting to me how tenure in theory creates the platform for academic freedom but by the time you get it as you say Mm -hmm. you've been trained in certain ways that actually mean you can't exercise that freedom very well by the time you've got it i don't know if you know the work of the economist raj chetty yeah uh, out of harvard but his work very well known on uh, on economic opportunity and he tells a great story of how he actually got access to the data from the irs upon which almost all of his work has been built he has anonymized uh, irs data which has allowed him to do this incredible work in social mobility and what they did was they applied so the irs actually puts out bids for people to come and do research and so once he'd got tenure he bid to do a piece of work for the IRS on some really boring thing, business taxation. Mm-hmm. And then you had to say how much you would charge for the work. And he mm-hmm. put zero, <laughs> which meant they had to give him the job because he was easily the best value. But then he said, but once he was in, he said, while I'm here, do you mind if I do some other analysis? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. a whole, you know, a whole, honestly, he's changed the subject as a result of that. But, but he's very clear he couldn't, could only do that once he had tenure. Mm-hmm. Everything was about get tenure. But he's probably the exception, in a way, that proves your rule, which is yeah. he was very strategic, which is I've got to do a bunch of stuff to get tenure. But then once I've got tenure, uh, I'm just going to do the stuff that I think is going to have impact, a lot of which actually wouldn't, isn't that impressive, right? It's not that mm-hmm. sophisticated mm-hmm. econometrics. It's just very, very good descriptive work with, mm-hmm. te- with big policy impact. Right. Um, but most of them, by then, they've, as I said, they've been socialized out of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had a professor um, who said that once you get tenure, you can hoist the Jolly Roger. And, you know, uh, but there's a surprisingly few number of academics that actually take advantage of that. It's, uh, it's kind of distressing. Um, yeah, I mean, I think these days with the politicization of everything, you know, some of the original motives for creating the tenure system have been coming back. So. It really started at the University of uh, Wisconsin, uh, you know, back in the progressive era in the late 19th century when there were, you know, as now there were some state legislators that thought that there was a bunch of progressive professors that were really Marxists and it was terrible that they were being paid with public money. And so they started going after them and the tenure system was created to protect them. Uh, And unfortunately, you know, we're probably 
in an age where we're going to see, you know, efforts to politicize and that. So I'm, you know, I, I can see the, the, the reasons why tenure exists, but I do think that it has these unrecognized downsides. Uh, and, the you know, the the primary one is, is really not the effect on older professors that get lazy, uh, but younger ones that get, you know, excessively rigid and narrow. Yeah, well, thank thank you for that. I didn't know some of that history, so I'm I'm, I'm grateful for that because it is an interesting system and a, quite an American one too. But let's talk about a bit more about your own journey over the last, I guess, what is it? I don't know. This is like thirty thirty years, I guess. <laughs> uh, I've done a review of your book as we just mentioned before we pressed record uh, for literary review, and I think I describe in that as you became the sort of poster boy for sort of liberal triumphalism during that that mm-hmm. period, and and I think you have a very good set of arguments as to why your book the end of history was overinterpreted. i think it would be fair to say mm-hmm. um but it but obviously it caught it caught the tenor of the times which was it really was this sense of you know riding high liberal democracy did seem to be kind of on the march across the world especially after the fall of the berlin wall and so on china and the wto just like i felt like you know sort of liberal democratic capitalism of one shape or another was was likely to become the norm, hence hence your argument. Can you talk a little bit about your journey sort of since then? Because I found it very interesting to to see you've really, you sort of, it felt to me like you went back, you did those two very impressive volumes on political order and where it comes mm-hmm. from, and then you've gone forward to identity and, and now what it means for liberalism. But obviously, you, in some people's eye, you're sort of, you are a little bit frozen in time as mm-hmm. that guy, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> it's yeah, like, oh yeah, yeah, that guy, the one that said that everything was great. Mm-hmm. Uh, and oh yeah, well, he was wrong. So that's literally as sophisticated as some people's view of your work gets. I'm sorry to put it so bluntly, but you do hear yeah. that sometimes. Oh, so no. Talk about Believe your own me, journey. I, I, I know that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, and I constantly get the Twitter comments, you know, yeah. oh, so history isn't over, is it? You know, yeah. so I, I'm used to it. Um, well, uh, you know, a lot of it was actually triggered by external events. So in the early 2000s, we had September 11th and then the um, uh, invasions of Afghanistan and Iraq. And that actually triggered uh, the eventual writing of that two-volume series on political order because, uh, you know, first of all, it was just a really startling event that seemed to come out of uh, left field, nobody really understood who these jihadists were, what was motivating them. Uh, but then when we invaded uh, these two countries, we toppled their governments and we all of a sudden faced this basic problem that we had to create a state, but nobody in the American establishment had any idea how you create a state from scratch. Mm. And as I started thinking about political science, it wasn't as if I had read books in graduate school about how states originated. You know, everybody assumes that the state exists, and in fact, most political scientists see their job as constraining a a pre-existing state. But if you have to build something from out of nothing, you know, how did that happen? So I began looking around and realizing that, you know, there's a a pretty big literature in anthropology about, you know, so-called pristine states and theories about how the first states arose, but political scientists don't pay any attention to that. Uh, So that's really uh, what started this. And then I got involved in a lot of development uh, projects. I worked for the World Bank, who uh, sent me, you know, after I had written about Iraq and Afghanistan, they sent me to Papua New Guinea and Timor-Leste and Mm. uh, the Solomons, uh, which um, you know, was a big problem for Australia because they were in the situation that America was in in Iraq, where they had countries that really didn't have states uh, or had extremely weak states, and they wanted to try to prop them up. And uh, they wanted some advice on, you know, whether their experiences in other parts of the world that could help them. That was one of the most fascinating times I've ever spent. You know, I understand now why anthropologists love Papua New Guinea because up in the highlands, it's probably one of the most authentic uh, surviving tribal societies. Uh, it's, you know, it's 50 to 100 years behind anything in sub-Saharan Africa. And so if you want to see a completely differently organized society, and if you also want to see why is it that trying to overlay modern parliamentary institutions on top of this kind of society simply doesn't work, 
that was a great case of it. Um, and so, you know, wrestling with these kinds of issues and then doing a lot of work with failed states began to, uh, it, it led me to this, which is the, really the bottom line conclusion of the political order books, that actually having a state matters. You know, this really set me on the opposite side of former libertarian friends that, you know, hate the state. Uh, but it, it really did seem to me historically Nobody develops if you don't have a state, and, and actually the process of getting from a patrimonial state uh, to a modern state that is impersonal, uncorrupt, you know, mm -hmm. highly capable of delivering services, that's a really, really hard uh, transition. And, uh, you know, that's, so that's, that's what led to the, yeah. the two volumes. The first volume, uh, you know, looked at societies that were wrestling with this question of how do you get beyond kinship to having uh, impersonal institutions and that was also quite a fascinating journey because I spent a lot of time looking at China, at the Ottomans, at uh, the Arab world, at India, uh, you know, and seeing that there actually were these different strategies for making that transition. Uh, but then the other big um, insight that came in the second volume was going backwards, you know, because uh, Many people in development and comparative politics sort of think of history as a one-way ratchet. And in fact, we used to have this idea of a consolidated democracy, you know, that mm. if you had two or three successive uh, turnovers in elections, then you're a consolidated democracy and the ratchet would never turn in the opposite direction. And I think, unfortunately, you know, the United States in recent years has proved that's just not true, that anyone can go backwards. Um, uh, yes. And, uh, you know, it's it's quite distressing to see the unraveling of democratic institutions. But, uh, you know, unfortunately, that's the reality. Uh, and so that's, you know, that consumed a lot of my time in the 2000s and the early 2010s. And then we got hit with the populist global revolution. And so that's really explains the last couple of books, because, yes. you know, I'm trying to think through that, which is what I'll cut, which is you know, what I want to come to next, but it does, it feels to me looking at that sort of median middle period of work, if you like, that that you came to a greater appreciation, and I think many of us have now, of the institutions of right. liberalism mm -hmm. and liberal democracy. Mm -hmm. I think a lot, a lot of us have spent time in the ideas mm -hmm. of liberalism and kind of liberal democracy, um, and not enough time on the institutions, and obviously the formal institutions, but to some extent, also the informal institutions, right. the norms, mm -hmm. the culture, and, and so mm -hmm. on. And, the, and mm -hmm. so liberalism and liberal democracy, so say those two things separately, actually being a work in progress and a work that we're all engaged in and that mm -hmm. doesn't just happen in some instrumental way. So it's not like you've got a Congress, you've got a Supreme Court, you've got rule of law, you've got property, like job done. Mm -hmm. Actually, it's something that's created and is an ongoing right. creation and it can, and can, can be uncreated, right? It can, as you said, yeah. it can go... They can go backwards. And you, you actually say, I'm going to quote you here in the, from the most recent book, liberalism is under severe threat whilst, while it was once taken for granted. And I think that's a period what perhaps we were just referring to when mm -hmm. men, I will say myself included, really thought that, that sort of history was on our side as liberals. Its virtues need to be clearly articulated and celebrated once again. It's much more... So we're, in, we're into an era of conditional liberalism and conditional democracy right. rather than mm -hmm. one that's assumed is that, is that and, and so that leads you then to your concerns about identity and mm -hmm. and then kind of most recently it's yeah and i think it's healthy you know i actually yeah. did have a chapter in the end of history in the last man called no democracy without democrats mm -hmm. and it was basically an argument about human agency that uh there is no historical mechanism that inevitably takes you to liberal democracy if people don't actually exercise agency and fight for it. And I think that, you know, certainly Putin has reminded everybody of that fact, you know, by his invasion of, uh, of Ukraine, that there are these active threats. And I think, you know, many people in Europe and North America got, you know, way too complacent about the security of uh, the existing liberal order. And, you know, it's taken this kind of vivid threat to make people realize that, you know, they do have to fight for things. Um, uh, 
Yes, and so, that there are, and that there are liberal there are liberal virtues, mm-hmm, <laughs> uh, and there's a liberal ethos uh, as well. And we'll maybe come on to uh, Thumos or Thymos uh, in in a little bit because I do okay. think it's kind of su- super interesting as kind of like what does it mean to be a liberal? So if like you can't have democracy without Democrats, and I think that was well put in your book and just now. But uh, you know, obviously, you can't have liberalism without liberals. Uh, and in particular, you can't have liberal pluralism without kind of liberal pluralists. And so there's a set of virtues. And one of the things that actually challenged me a bit, I don't know if you've engaged at all with the work of Joseph Henrik and his work on yes. weird mm-hmm. cultures, is that mm-hmm. actually makes quite a compelling argument that it's actually there's it, our psychology has actually been affected by these institutions over mm-hmm. time. And that actually, so it's not just at a level of social norms and so on, but actually of our psychological makeup. And so that takes much longer to change. It can change. It's not hardwired, of course, but there's a certain you know, Western psychology, to use the shorthand, mm-hmm. that, that it tends to support those institutions and allows for impersonal trust. Is that... Does that in any way alter you, the way you think about it? I mean, you, you're strong in saying you can't just like parachute in democracy on top of a yeah. kin, kin-based culture. But what, what about if we don't even think the same way? Um, so I'm perfectly willing to accept the idea, you know, and a lot of this is coming out of a lot of cognitive neuroscience these days, that the brain is much more plastic than we've been assuming, uh, you know, and that it does get shaped, uh, you know, by early childhood experiences, by culture, by a lot of other factors. So it wouldn't be surprising at all if there are certain faculties that are more developed in certain societies and that that has actually a biological uh, uh, correlate. So I think that's um, entirely possible. Um, Now, the thing about Heinrich's book is that these weird people um historically uh you know may represent a particular cultural strand at a particular that developed at a particular moment but i think that the thing that he doesn't get at is the question of universalism whether there actually are certain ways of perceiving the world that you know take on a, a more universal significance and the big issue, I think, um, is, is the question of individualism, because individualism is absolutely crucial to liberal theory. You know, this idea that we um, uh, we make decisions as individuals, that we have our rights protected as individuals, that the individual has greater authority than any group that you know the individual might be a member of. And what I said in both the political order books and also in uh, the new book is that individualism historically was contingent. I mean, it, it didn't always exist, including in Western societies that were, you know, kinship oriented and much more group oriented at, at certain um, uh, historical periods. But, you know, you can trace the uh, growth of individualism both as a social phenomenon and as an ideology. In fact, this is the chapter I'm proudest of in The Origins of Political Order was, um, uh, I think the, the title of that chapter was The, the Catholic Church Destroys the Family. Mm. Uh, basically, it was this argument uh, that a number of new family historians have made, that Heinrich makes also in yes, his book. Yes, he does make it too. Yeah. That, uh, you know, that basically the, the Catholic Church changing the rules of inheritance undermined these large kinship groups uh, in the late Middle Ages, and therefore made possible the kind of um, individualism, uh, uh, you know, in inheritance, that then supported a broader kind of economic individualism, and then individualism as a social phenomenon. So I'm perfectly willing to concede that individualism is not universal, that, you know, most societies are not individualistic uh, in the way that Western ones are, but I think that as you modernize, individualism becomes much more important, Um, you know, that that's the source of, you know, in a way, growth, entrepreneurship, risk-taking, you know, a lot of things uh, are made possible by individualism. And I think also as people get better educated and have more resources, uh, their individual characteristics become more uh, important to them. And so I do think that there's still an unanswered question about universalism, you know, whether 
once you've tasted that kind of individualism, can you ever go back to a highly regimented, group-oriented society? And uh, you know, I think the the jury is out on that. You know, on that question. Um, mm. Well, only if uh, only if there was a huge amount of agreement amongst the groups. I mean, it certainly wouldn't be consistent with with pluralism. Mm-hmm. I'll just note, actually, I think that one of the one of the other aspects of this argument about the church and individualism um, is the impact on marriage. And so one mm-hmm. of the things that J- Joe talks about a lot, and I actually had him on here too, is the way that cousin marriage was, was regulated. Yes, that's right. I mean, just, uh, and that created kind of conditions of the nuclear family and impersonal trust too. But you've, you've talked about universalism, and this is something, a real theme of your, uh, of your work, but of, I think perhaps particularly strongly of your, uh, in your most recent book, um, which is, and I'll quote you here, you say liberal democracies are premised on the equal recognition of the dignity of each of their citizens as individuals. So each and every, right, by, by implication. Um, and so there is, this, there is an inescapable universalist ethos uh, and philosophy that lies at the heart of liberal democracies, right? In, mm-hmm. Inescapably so, and I think you and I would agree positively so. Mm-hmm. That that kind of mm-hmm. equal dignity, but that raises all kinds of questions and and problems. And one problem, so we we'll start with one. So problem problem number one is where's the line? And you're mm-hmm. very clear about this. You kind of say that liberal, liberal as a philosophy really struggled to say why Americans matter more than Canadians or Mexicans say. Right? That these nation state lines feel very arbitrary, and it's why liberals have very often dreamt of universalism and global governments and etc., right? which is because nation states feel like a very arbitrary way to determine equal worth. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's this tension between the universalism at the heart of liberal democracy yes. and the brute fact of nation states. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think the way you deal with that is just by accepting the brute fact uh, as like, this is where we are right now. But I don't think you even attempt to, so- I don't think you can solve this at a kind of theoretical level i think it's just a problem that we have to live with is that a fair summary of where you landed no no that's right i mean i tried to think through uh how you reconcile the division of the world into nations uh with the the liberal premise and it is a kind of pragmatic uh case that i make for it which is that although uh the dignity of each individual under liberal theory is equal that enforcement uh, so the dignity has to be protected by a liberal order that protects people's rights. And that enforcement power is something that's done by states that have limited territorial jurisdiction. And in fact, enforcement power is a scarce commodity. So there's no state in the world that can protect the rights of every person in the world, even though they deserve to have those rights protected. Uh, and in fact, you probably wouldn't want a state that tried to protect the rights of everybody in every other country outside of its own, you know, borders. Uh, that would make for a lot of busybodiness. That, and, that really would be a world a world policeman, take yes, it literally, wouldn't yeah. it? Yeah. Uh, so you 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 know you wouldn't want that. And then, as a result, since enforcement power is a scarce resource and really needs to be exercised in a territorial manner, that means we're stuck with states uh, and. You know, so that's the practical argument, but I think there's also a psychological dimension to this, which really has to do with the sphere of human empathy, that um, there are limits to it. Uh, you know, nobody except a very small handful of ultra-liberal types, you know, is truly a citizen of the world in the sense that they, uh, you know, and this is kind of a one of these moral question type things, you know, that, you know, would you take the suffering of somebody 8,000 miles on the other side of the world as seriously as the suffering of your own child. Uh, And I think that, you know, there's a kind of moral insight that everybody has that says, yes, you do take more seriously the suffering of people that are close to you, that you're familiar with, that may be related to you, but that that's okay, you know, that, that a mother that spent more time worrying about babies, you know, in Bangladesh than her own children, people would regard as, you know, kind of morally strange, right? Uh, yeah, it's like, the, I mean, this is very Peter Singer, of course, and it's kind yeah. of that util- ultra utilitarian kind of view of the world. As somebody once said, you know, who basically says that we should yeah. treat everyone the same, it's like Peter Singer is impossible to disagree with, but also impossible to follow. 
Um, but I actually prefer, there's a great line from Bernard Williams, who's one of my favorite philosophers, who, who said that anybody, if, if you have two people that are drowning, right, and you can only pull one of them out of the water, and one of them is your wife, and the other one is, he used Archbishop Fenelon or something, as some example, <laughs> but, but, but just someone of great public value, let's say, right, right, whether Mother Teresa or, right, choose, choose your, so you've got these two people, and he says, and if you, if you think about which one to pull out of the water based on any kind of calculus, that's one thought too many. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, it, and of course, he's exactly right. There's a kind of just like anybody that stopped to consider whether to pull their own wife or child or husband out of the yeah, water, yeah. but on some sort of rational, like you'd think there's something profoundly morally wrong with that person. No, so it right. just doesn't get at this relationality, right? And that's mm-hmm. where that's where some of the the thinner conceptions of of individualism kind of leave us short and i think we just have to be honest we have to be honest about that right that's right that's right so it means that we are going to be uh, more altruistic and loyal to people that are close to us and uh, although human societies have spread you know the circle of empathy much much more broadly than tribal societies or hunter-gatherer societies uh you know it's not unlimited and uh you know, the nation seems to be the unit, kind of the maximal unit uh, of loyalty, uh, where people feel a real deep emotional connection to other people. And I think, you know, for example, that's one of the big failings of the EU, that I, I know of very few people that think of themselves as European first and then French or Italian or Dutch, you know, second. Uh, it just doesn't work that way. Um, so I think, you know, for those emotional reasons, uh, you need a kind of instinctive solidarity. You know, it's it's exactly that pulling your wife out of the water without having to think about it. Uh, that is really the glue of society. And you you know you can't have people calculating rationally at every moment. You know, is my society better than some alternative? And I'm going to be loyal to it only if I calculate that you know that it is. You you need that emotional uh, attachment if the society is going to cohere. So that's another reason why I think we're not done with the nation mm-hmm. uh, at this point. Uh, you know, both the practical one of enforcement power, and then uh, you know the, the the one having to do with you know how we actually form loyalty and, and uh, you know social solidarity. Mm. Yes, yeah, so well, that gets me to to thumos or thymos or however we're going to say it. So I'll because uh, you do thumos. You, I said thumos. You stu- I, and look. You, 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 are the classical Greek scholar, Frank. So I'm, I'm going to go with you. Thumos is, is probably, I'm sure, sounds right. Um, but you do talk quite a bit about this. In, I think this is more an identity. So I'm, ba- I'm well aware I'm bouncing between your books now. So I, mm-hmm. I apologize. Um, uh, but uh, in that place, I think you say, I'm quoting from there now, where you said, and you're looking back to actually the end of history in the Last Man, where you say, like, you noted that neither nationalism nor religion were about to disappear as forces in world politics. And one of the reasons they weren't about to disappear, and I'm quoting you again now, you say they had not fully solved the problem of Thumos. Mm-hmm. Thumos is the part of the soul that craves recognition of dignity. The, and uh, isothumia is the demand to be respected on an equal basis as other people. And then megalothumia is the desire to be re- recognized as superior. So this idea really is very strong in your work now of equal dignity mm-hmm. and of equal respect. And at one point you even said we need a better theory of the human soul. Uh, and, and, and that we, a liberal democracy, can only get us so far in terms of rec- is, is, is what I, I read you as, as right. saying mm-hmm. right? uh, mm-hmm. and the other forces and I think right now for example Ukrainian nationalism is probably seen as a good thing by most people mm-hmm. whereas mm-hmm. Russian nationalism maybe isn't um, and I, I'm just interested to, know, to hear you talk a little bit more about the relationship between if you like the individualism and universalism of liberalism or liberal democracy to use a broad term and the sort of thumos value of nationalism and religion, you know, tribes, areas, etc., and how you know how you now think about the likely balance of those, and whether you think that it's just a matter of waiting it out. You know, I used to think myself, we'll just wait, we'll wait it out, and eventually we won't need those other things. But I absolutely don't believe that anymore, yeah. and that it's really about a balance between the two. How do you think about that now? Well, so uh, you know, isothumia, this uh, desire to be treated as equal, is really one of the things that drives people towards democracy. 
you know, I, I like the example of Mohammed Bouazizi that sparked the Arab Spring, you know, the vegetable seller in Tunisia who had his cart confiscated and, you know, he wasn't treated as a human being by the police. You know, he they wouldn't answer his questions, they wouldn't talk to him. And he got very uh, upset with that and set himself on fire. And that experience was so common for people living under these Arab dictatorships that, you know, they, they all got out on the streets, you know, to uh, in sympathy with him. And that's a case where you're not recognizing my equal dignity as a human being. You're not treating me as a human being. You're just treating me as an object. And so that's uh, very powerful as a uh, spur against uh, authoritarian government. Because an authoritarian government, you know, the, the, the most uh, gentle kinds like Singapore treat you as a child, you know, where you don't know your own self-interest, so the state is going to paternalistically take care of you. The worst ones treat you as trash, you know, you can be liquidated or eliminated and so forth. So there is this, you know, desire to be equally recognized, but, uh, you know, once you achieve a society of equal recognition, it becomes a, a little bit thin because, you know, you're kind of equal to every other person in the society. You certainly don't like it if you're not treated equally, but you know, for a lot of people, I think that's not enough, both on an individual level and on a group level. And so people want to, you know, be part of something larger. And I think the appeal of nationalism is that it doesn't treat people as part of a kind of universal humanity who is equal to every other person in the world. It treats you as a member of a group that has a certain culture, a certain history. Uh, they worship certain gods, you know, they... Um, uh, have a certain way of life, and that special recognition uh, for the group uh, is really the, the underlying motive for nationalism. And just as an individual can get very angry if uh, he or she is disrespected, a group can get extremely angry if it is disrespected. And so, you know, and again, it plays out in different ways. I mean, if you're a marginalized racial minority, you may be just fighting for isothumia, you know, for equal recognition. But a lot of times uh, people want something more than that, so they want to be recognized as superior. And I think that's kind of what's the problem with Russian national identity right now is that you know, that identity can't be divorced from you know, the desire to dominate other people uh, around you. Uh, and that um, you know, is a thicker form of identity and recognition than the liberal kind, and it sort of explains why liberalism is not enough for people oftentimes yeah so it's a defining against i think rather than a defining by all yeah. right mm -hmm. and we see more of that i think in some of the polarization we see now it's like i'm i am like this because i'm not you right and so it's uh, mm -hmm. i mean i haven't really thought this through but it does seem like there are i mean you talk a bit about this are different identities which is something like, like i'm x y and z you're a b and c but we can look each other in the eye and treat each other with respect because I'm pretty, right. I'm pretty, feel pretty solid in my identity as X, Y, Z, mm -hmm. not to be threatened by your identity as, you know, A, B, A, B, C. Uh, whereas there's another view, which is like your very presence, your difference is threatening to me. And so what we need mm -hmm. is kind of more uh, homogeneity. There's a nice line in um, Leon Wieseltier has a piece on Christianism. In, yeah, in I read Liber that. Liber yeah, which is super interesting. There's this lovely line about an argument he had with, Oh, wasn't which conservative was it where he said where he just said to him look i don't think the reason i don't think it's because i'm in the synagogue down the street that you're struggling to keep your kids in your catholic church yeah, right that yeah. was the line but there is a tendency now to say because i don't know we're more racially diverse that's making it that's threatening my white identity because we're mm -hmm. more religiously diverse it's threatening my christian identity or you know mm -hmm. ad, you know ad infinitum in a way because i have to sort of separate myself rather than rather so these some of these identities turn out to be quite quite fragile in some ways mm -hmm. in the way that mm -hmm. they're they're held and what what nationalism at its best like patriotism is mm -hmm. probably good, is a is a way to have a bigger group that embraces the smaller right the groupiness within the group and so i wonder mm -hmm. whether you worry at all now about how the very idea of being proud to be american uh is a problem right because that feels like it's getting quite political in fact we're right, we're driving through the south the other, the other day and my wife said to me she sort of said she said i'm really worried now that actually if you fly a flag 
outside your house, people just assume you're a Republican. Mm-hmm. They assume you're right wing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that even that, that, even just, it's not, that's not a Confederate flag. It's not a Trump mm-hmm. flag. It's the American mm-hmm. flag, it's the, mm-hmm. which as a new American, I'm very proud of. Mm-hmm. But she worries about now because mm-hmm. she thinks that even that, and I do think this, the discussion about history and so on. So how do you feel about the discussion of, of being American is playing into this debate about identity now? Well, uh, I think in a kind of unhelpful way, uh, you know, there's been this long evolution of uh, American national identity. And, you know, before the Civil War, it was very limited. You know, it was only white men with property that were full citizens and had full uh, the full set of rights. And really, American history since that time has been this gradual expansion of the circle of people who are recognized as being uh, deserving of, of full citizenship. So, you know, after the Civil War, African Americans, in theory, were you know brought into that circle, although they were very quickly excluded through other means other than slavery. Uh, with Jim Crow, you know, women were brought in in you know uh, 19 um, whenever it was 19, 19 or 20. Uh, 1928 on equal terms, I think. Okay. Right. Yeah. Um, And then, uh, obviously, you know, that struggle is continuing, gays and lesbians, you know, various other marginalized groups. And I think that the important achievement in national identity was one that was reached uh, after the civil rights movement, when there was a clear, I think, sense that, you know, American identity would no longer be defined in ethnic, racial, or religious terms, um, that rather it would be a kind of civic uh, national identity that was built around uh, allegiance to the Constitution, to a certain set of founding democratic and liberal principles, and that that's really what made you uh, an American, and not your skin color, or your ancestry, or your gender, or anything else. And I think that was a real achievement. I mean, it's certainly the way that I thought of myself, you know, um, not being a white uh, American, um, you know, but to me growing up, it didn't matter because that was never part of the definition of being an American. And I think that one of the great, uh, you know, tragedies right now of the present moment is that there are people that want to walk that back, you know, that, mm-hmm. that do want to... Um, return to a kind of racial uh, understanding of who uh, who an American is. Um, and then, you know, there's actually a left-wing threat to that identity as well, because, you know, people on the left would like to actually uh, kind of uh, de-emphasize, you know, the, the uh, privilege of being an American, um, uh, you know, in... in, mm. in in a lot of ways so um and lean more into some of the smaller group identities yeah Uh, and obviously there are extreme examples that make for good good press of affinity groups and elementary Mm -hmm. schools and so on but Mm -hmm. but i i I agree with that and in fact one of my one of my most modest but perhaps most radical policy proposals ever was every high school student should attend a naturalization ceremony yeah that would be a good idea graduating because having having been at one myself where Mm -hmm. Like it's I very would, moving. I, it isn't it. Have you have you been to one? Yeah, yeah. Um, they really are. And for me, it was like I had a green card, so it wasn't that big a deal practically. And I wanted to mm-hmm. vote. I actually just I, I was in the last group of people to become a to become a citizen on that day in Maryland and still be able eligible to register to vote in 2016. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it was you know I went along. I get it done, then I can register to vote. And it was. I, I was blown away. I mean, the Afghan mm-hmm. family next to me, the Mexican-American mm-hmm. family behind me, the Iranian, Iranian family, the, the tears, the, mm-hmm. the you know, just, it was incredibly, and then every single one of us went and registered to vote. Mm-hmm. And for some of those people, that was, I mean, just, you know, the sense of pride and joy, mm-hmm. it's just incredible, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And I, I yeah. think a lot of, I think a lot of, you know, cradle Americans, if I can call them that, mm-hmm. don't realize mm-hmm. <laughs> what a huge deal it is. No, oh, absolutely. Yeah. How, pre- how precious it can be. Yeah, so, um, you know, Marty Lipset, my, uh, one of the other great teachers that I had, uh, used to say this about American identity, that, uh, you know, in, let's say, just, I don't want to pick on the Germans, but if you're a Turk uh, who grew up in Germany 
uh, your parents, you know, uh, were German citizens, you still can't get up and say, I'm a German, because that adjective still has a racial or ethnic uh, connotation. Uh, and that's true in a lot of countries, like in Japan, you know, um, national identity really is very much uh, racially based. And, um, uh, and in fact, mm. uh, you, you know, even a Korean that may be physically indistinguishable from someone with Japanese, you know, doesn't doesn't qualify. So um, it's a really big achievement in the United States at a naturalization um, uh, ceremony when, you know, somebody with a brown skin from Guatemala or somebody from, you know, your Korean grocer can get up and say, I'm an American and nobody will laugh at them. Mm -hmm. You know, I've, I've always thought that that was a really great achievement of this country. And one of the things that makes me proud to be an American is that, you know, we've detached Americanness from, uh, you know, race or religion. And I think that's very important. And I think the people that want to reattach it to one of those characteristics are really dragging us backwards. Yeah, and that's true on both sides, as you say. And so mm -hmm. I, I agree. There's something there's something rather beautiful about about the fact of having that citizenship, uh, mm -hmm. which is not captured by the sort of technocratic language around it a little bit. I want to talk um, a bit about economic inequality because I see that as a rising theme in your work uh, mm -hmm. and in um, and in your, in your most recent book, Liberalism and Its Discontents. Uh, you say liberalism constituted the ideological basis for a market economy and hence in the minds of many is implicated in the inequalities entailed by capitalism. Mm -hmm. So one of the reasons for the discontent at liberalism is precisely because it's, it's associated with a certain kind of economic, fairly or unfairly, and maybe you can mm -hmm. comment on that too. And, mm -hmm. you know, I think there's a big debate there, but it's seen as the underpinning philosophical justification, as you say, for market economies. And look what's happened to inequality in market economies recently, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, which is a field I've done quite a bit of work in, uh, and I think does fuel a lot of this discontent. This, this and so, is, A, is it true that that's become a bigger theme of your work? And B, B, why is that? And C, where does that lead you to in terms of rethinking some of your earlier positions, maybe in, in, even in terms of policy? Well, uh you know, that I think is simply reacting to events hmm. <laughs> because inequality has been growing steadily over the last, you know, 40, 50 years. And it particularly accelerated uh, when we uh, entered into this kind of hyper globalization uh, in the 1990s yes. and, and 2000s. Uh, and it also um, resulted in things like the 2008 financial crisis because you had this neoliberal set of, so, you know, I, I distinguish between kind of classical economic liberalism and what's been labeled neoliberalism. Okay, that's important. Is, so let's spend yeah, a moment. It's really, it's really the Chicago talk, talk, school. Talk us through the difference. Yeah, I mean, it's the Chicago school. It's, it's Milton Friedman and economists like him who, you know, really think that the market is the solution to many, you know, social problems. The state is you know, regarded very negatively as an obstacle to uh, growth and to basic fairness. And I think under the sway of those ideas, uh, economic policy did not respond to actual empirical conditions. It became a kind of ideology that, you know, the state was always bad and needed to be taken out of the equation, you know, where you could. And you know, decentralized market-based solutions were necessarily better. And I think that that uh, directly led to the financial crisis because, you know, there had been a whole series of uh, efforts to deregulate the financial uh, markets uh, beginning in the late 80s, but then continuing it culminated in this um, uh, Graham-Leach-Bliley Act that was passed by Congress and signed by Bill Clinton uh, in the late 1990s that basically took away a lot of the protections that had existed under Glass-Steagall and the regime that came out of the Depression. And I think that that allowed these big uh, banks to take, you know, huge risks uh, with other people's money, and that was the ultimate cause of the crash in, uh, in 2008. So the reason that I'm more in favor of left-wing economic policies is that 
the you know I think the right wing ones have failed. I mean they've led to a higher level of uh, inequality that makes democracy harder to sustain, and I think that they've also destabilized the system in ways that are also very destructive to the legitimacy of of democracy. Yeah. So it's as there's two things there though, aren't there? There's the, the the fact of economic inequality, which you said, as I'm glad you said that accelerated in the late 80s and 90s, and has actually been growing much more slowly since then, if at all. Um, but also the financialization of the economy. So there's they're, they're related, but but different different things. And it's similar in the UK. I, mean, I vividly remember being at the press. I was a journalist at the time, being at a press conference where Gordon Brown announced the new light touch regulation regime for the mm-hmm. city of London. It really took a new Labour government to go further even than the uh, conservative governments had gone to deregulate many of the financial markets that you know, many many years later we we you know we saw kind of leading us to that that crisis but it, you do you do this neoliberalism classical liberalism distinction and i do think it's quite important to separate capitalism from liberal democracy it's not mm-hmm. i mean i think you can argue for capitalism on its own merits but i think for a lot of people it was liberal democratic capitalism and i'm thinking mm-hmm. branko milanovic's book saying actually it's called i don't know one world or something but he basically yeah. argues that like capitalism's everywhere now and it turns out that you can do capitalism without liberal democracy state mm-hmm. capitalism is doing quite well in china for example mm-hmm. and so this idea that it was a package deal is a questionable just empirically but b i think it's just wrong morally i mean i just if you go back to smith and mill and you know many of these other liberals mm-hmm. they weren't neoliberals they weren't they were agnostic about the state and they were very mm-hmm. concerned about inequality. What they were ultimately concerned about was liberty and mm-hmm. equality. And their mm-hmm. test of any institutional set of arrangements was how far it furthered those ends. And at some point along the line, capitalism got somehow merged intellectually with liberalism. And so someone said to me the other day for the project I'm doing, we need a better name for a post-neoliberal economy. And I said, well, how about a liberal economy? Mm-hmm. right po- maybe mm-hmm. post neoliberal means because the, the neo because <laughs> it's not i mean it's not true that liberal liberal economics leads you to laissez-faire is it just historically uh, no it shouldn't um well you know i do think that uh among the rights uh uh and the forms of autonomy that a liberal society protects uh you know property rights and um the liberty to transact uh you know, are are components of it and have been from the beginning. Uh, And you can justify that both uh, as a philosophical matter and as a kind of practical matter. As a philosophical matter, you know, if you say that people have the right to make decisions on their own, one of the most important ones they make is, you know, whether, how am I going to earn my living? Who am I going to transact with? You know, can I accumulate property? This sort of thing. Certainly with John Locke, that was really, you know, central to his thought. So I don't think they're entirely divorced. But, you know, when you talk about the policy um, decisions that we've been confronted with, like how big a state should we have, how much uh, regulation, how much uh, public sector ownership, all of these things I don't think are determined by liberal ideology. I think that, you know, if you have a system that fundamentally protects the rights of uh, citizens, uh, individual citizens, then you're in a liberal regime, even if you do a relatively large amount of redistribution and have a really big social safety net. So I think that, you know, Sweden and Denmark uh, are liberal regimes. Um, yeah. Uh, even though, you know, the Danes used to have like a, a 60% marginal tax rate, you know, but it's still a liberal regime. Um, well, it's, but it's, I'm glad you raised the Nordics, actually, because what's interesting about them in this context, I think, is that they actually have relatively lightly regulated uh, product markets, particularly, mm-hmm. and consumer markets. Um, and they, ha- they do have labor market regulations, but they lean very, very hard on the, the welfare side of it i sometimes mm-hmm. think one of the problems in the u.s is that because we have such a threadbare welfare system we end up trying to do a lot of our social policy through the labor market um it's sort of playing catch-up in a way but there's a pretty mm-hmm. good argument i think that something like a strong welfare state and a pretty free labor and product market isn't a bad combination i mean mm-hmm. there's nothing but mm-hmm. i think your point holds is there's nothing magic about any particular formula Mm-hmm. there's lots mm-hmm. of different ways yeah. lots of different ways that you can you can go about it i think yeah and i don't think the liberal theory dictates a particular no. 
you know, approach. No, to some extent, it's it's an adjunct to it rather than central to it. But I do think that's one of the problems. And I think you're quite right to identify that is in people's minds. It was liberalism is what did inequality to us, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. Whereas, in fact, it was much more supply side conservatism, very often then absorbed by the new left of people Mm -hmm. like Blair and and Clinton and so on, who I will say, hands up, I was a big supporter of. You know, I think Mm -hmm. it's really important. I did not did not see some of this this coming. One of the areas I worried a little bit about um, is whether you give a little bit too much ground in places to, let's say, to the communitarian line of thinking. So the communitarian view that the problem with liberalism is it's all atomized individuals and where we shouldn't judge anybody else. It's like, you know, whatever, whatever works for you, very separate and so on. Um, whereas, in fact, we're relational and we have to have common. So Michael Sandel type criticisms, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right, uh, or even right. some common goods, so on. Um, and and I, I thought you gave a bit too much ground uh, to them. And there was one point in particular where where you contrasted these. It was a very communitarian move, actually. You contrasted two individuals, and it was mm-hmm. you know, deliberately caricatured, a kind of high, you know, a high guy who didn't finish high school, smoked weed, you know, no interest in doing it you know, just you know not not doing anything useful with his life basically mm-hmm. and you contrast him with this single mom who's working and studying and doing the best and volunteering mm-hmm. and so on so this kind of you took this very strong contrast and then you said and i quote you here you say john you talk about rules particularly but i mm-hmm. think this would apply more to liberalism more generally but you can tell me if that's wrong would not allow either would not allow either public authorities or the rest of us to pass judgment on these two individuals and it was the addition of those five words or the rest of us where I think I depart from you. Because mm-hmm. even though in a liberal state, the public authorities are not going to pass judgment on the weed smoking dropout. Because in the end, it's his decision whether to be how he's constructing his version mm-hmm. of the good mm-hmm. life. Right. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't stop me judging him. <laughs> so I don't think there's anything in liberal theory generally, or even in Rawlsian theory, that stops me me from judging him. And in fact, I think this is one of the problems with liberals, actually, is that they shy away from judgment. Whereas I think that moral judgment, social norms, strong culture is more important to liberals than it is to either libertarians no, or that's... conservatives. Yeah. Because I, I otherwise you have a libertarian, you have anarchy on one hand, or you have, you have, you mentioned earlier paternalism, which mm-hmm. is like, I think actually liberalism requires more of that kind of moralizing than, than you suggest. No, I think it does as a practical matter. I think, um, you know, what I was trying to get at is this um, Rawlsian idea that justice is, that justice always trumps the good, that uh, liberalism is not trying to protect any particular substantive view of the good life. Mm. Um, and, you know, I think that that's a wrong understanding of why we want to live in a liberal society. I think we actually want to live in a liberal society because we do want to be able to pursue, you know, particular visions of the good life. Um, but we want to do it peacefully and in ways that don't you know, obstruct other people's ability to do the same. And so it's, you know, it's kind of the distinction between an anti-clerical regime and a regime that protects religious liberty. So the American First Amendment, um, you know, protects the free exercise of religion. It doesn't guard us from religion. But there are interpretations, you know, of a secular society that say, no, actually, the state needs to protect, you know, individuals from religion and, you know, including the social, you know, conformity that that religious belief uh, uh, prescribes. So I do think that there is a little bit of that in, Hmm. uh, you know, in Rawlsian liberal thought that really prizes non-judgmentalism because it wants to shy away from, you know, substantive understandings of, uh, of morality. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I think that's that's right. Um, and I I guess what I'm saying, I think as the or the rest of us, I think as individuals, we have absolute power to pass judgment on those two individuals, mm-hmm. and we would if they were in our own lives for sure, right? If I have I have three sons, for example, if one of them is you know person A in your scenario, and the other one is mm-hmm. person B, you can bet mm-hmm. person A is going to be <laughs> hearing some harsh words from me, or even a friend, or so on too. And I and I and I see that as in important i guess yeah i think there's a middle ground between us because i'm thinking about mill's quote which is 
the only freedom worthy of the name is pursuing our own good in our own way. Mm-hmm. And I'm only thinking about this particularly closely now, which is that this idea of pursuing actually may be the most important word in that sentence, although it's not the one I've really reflected on before. There's something about agency, to come back to almost where you started, Frank, this idea of the agentic self that's missing in your first person, the sort of person that's just not doing anything with their lives. Mm-hmm. And so maybe it, maybe what you're really suggesting is that liberalism is perfectly willing to sort of pass judgment in theory or should be willing to pass judgment in theory of someone who's not doing anything with their lives. Precisely what they do with it, so long as it's not harmful, might be a different question. But it seems mm-hmm. to me what bothers you about the, the guy smoking weed not doing anything is he's not showing agency. And in the end, liberalism is about agency it's not just about leaving you alone it's about mm-hmm. having a view of the good where you are pursuing it to use kind of mill's verb again yeah well um uh maybe i think that you know you cannot be um you cannot rest everything simply on the active pursuit of something because the substantive content of what you are pursuing also matters you know and i guess what i was thinking of was that any liberal society needs people to actively exercise not just some virtues, but they need to exercise liberal virtues, right? Of tolerance, of of deliberation, of, you know, rational discourse uh, and, and, uh, you know, and and loyalty, uh, you know, to the liberal institutions themselves. And um, so it goes beyond simply exercising agency because you can exercise agency to do a lot of, you know, well, at best, you know, worthless things, but, you know, uh, uh, at the other end of the scale, you know, actively socially destructive things. Um, well, there are many yeah. socially destructive things that we do that are not illegal. And, uh, you know, you also want to have a substantive view of, you know, what people ought to be doing. You know, this came out, I think, I may have stuck this simply in a in a footnote, but um, you know, there's this discussion uh, in Kant about whether uh, we have a duty to educate ourselves. And Kant actually at one point, you know, says, no, actually, we don't have <laughs> this duty. You know, we, we simply have the categorical imperative. And um, it was Bill Galston in one of his books pointed out that Kant on this point was actually quite... Um, uh, inconsistent because you can find other par- parts of his writing in which he praises, you know, people that educate themselves. And that was not something where a liberal could be indifferent, you know, as to what, you know, so that self-education was a vision, a substantive vision of the good. Uh, and in a liberal society, you know, you had to show preference for that. And so I guess that's kind of what I was getting at is that you can't be neutral with regard to substance. You can't be completely neutral with regard to substantive aims. You know, for Rawls, the only place where that becomes verboten is where you're interfering with somebody else's pursuit of substantive aims. And I, you know, I guess what I would argue is that um, there has to be a uh, kind of broader, you know, uh, scope for for. Hmm that kind of judgment. Yes. I guess I'm probably doing too much Mill right now, but I think it because it's so central, I think, you know, Mill said, we're all under a moral responsibility to develop our character. And so there is something, this sort of sense of, you know, because we're individuals. And Mm -hmm. and actually it's like, I wonder sometimes whether or not, whether liberalism does actually create the conditions for its own perpetuation in that sense. And maybe this, you know, I've done a bit of work on respect. And whilst I don't think tolerance is enough anymore for each other, I think we have to respect each other, but also probably self-respect. And self-respect requires you to make something of what you've been given. It actually requires mm-hmm. you to kind of use the unique talents, which which might lead you in a religious direction, <laughs> uh, which is probably a conversation for, for another day. But I do think kind of what's the basis for that kind of sense of us being unique. And you talk a little bit right. about that. And I think you, mm-hmm. you treat religion respectfully to use that, that word mm-hmm. again as a potential source for that sense of self. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which is, which is, Definitely. I'll let you go, Frank, but just one sentence on what makes you hopeful. 
no the other and one sentence on what you were most worried about as you kind of survey the landscape now let's do let's do uh we're most worried about first a because that tends to be easier right now and b because then we can leave on a high note but something that you what are you most worried about and what are you most hopeful about well the um you know i've been doing a lot of work with Ukrainians uh, over the last uh, eight years, and obviously I worry very much about them personally, Mm. and I worry about what's going to happen to world politics if Putin manages to, um, you know, succeed in in even a part of his agenda of grabbing as much of that country as he can. Um, And it plays into our politics here because our populists like Putin and a, a successful Putin sets a certain model for all the Le Pens and Trumps and, you know, Viktor Orbans and so forth around the world. So you're right. That's an easy one to Yeah, <laughs> that's an the easy bad one news to one's answer. easy right now, yeah. Um, uh, I guess um, in terms of what gives me hope, um, I, I, I guess, you know, what I've always thought is that if you look at history in a kind of long enough perspective, you see that there are these broader patterns. And, uh, you know, the first half of the 20th century is pretty horrendous in terms of political outcomes. Hmm. But it nonetheless laid the ground for the next 75 years that were actually pretty good. And so it could be that, in a way, the current crises are simply laying the basis for a longer term, you know, restoration of liberal values. So I don't know if that's a reason for hope, but, you know. Well, it's a dark dark as before the dawn. And I I do think, as you say in your most recent book, more generally, and something that I think liberals uh, need to hear is this, you know, it doesn't do it by itself. Mm-hmm. And I, I've written a little bit about this myself. I think that you've used the word complacent, and I do think that we were complacent, and that we're so used to some of these outcomes and institutions mm-hmm. that we didn't we didn't realize we had to fight. You know, liberals for a long time had to fight pretty hard against a lot mm-hmm. of vested mm-hmm. interests, and I think we lost that fighting spirit. But if nothing else, we kind of learned to do. That. And I see some signs of that popping up, which is mm-hmm. a sort of awakening in a way of a liberal conscience. Um, after you after a sort of few years of complacency so or that i will let you go your your latest book is liberalism and its discontents but i would also encourage anyone listening to this to to look back through your back catalog um and in particular at the, the two volume uh work you did on on political order i thought the origins of political order was genuinely a really terrific book and i admire your ability to do that kind of really in-depth and sustained work as well as the more public intellectual side of your work too. And I, I know I think that some people know one side of your work and some people know the other side of it, but, um, but it's really, I think it's really worth people. It's, these are much longer books, I will say. Yes. Uh, <laughs> your books are, your books either seem to be really succinct or not. <laughs> There's no right. middle ground with you, Frank, but they, they, those are generally a two, two volume must read. I think for anyone who's interested in this stuff as well as your most recent work. So thank you for your work okay. and thank you for coming on today. Well, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Dialogues. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. And if you did, please take a moment to follow, like, rate, and share the podcast in all the usual places. And send me your thoughts and ideas, including for future guests, to dialoguespod at gmail.com. That's dialoguespod at gmail.com. I'll see you next time.